For more than 18 months, Washington Post reporters had been closely following and reporting on developments in Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And on Friday, late in the day, some long-awaited news about that probe finally broke. And, uh, the Justice Department is, uh, is telling us that uh, Attorney General Bill Barr has now received the report from uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller. The investigation, 675 days old, is now over. So uh, Mueller had submitted his final report to Attorney General William Barr. Devlin Barrett, a national security reporter here at The Post, describes what Friday's breaking news moment felt like for a journalist who's been dedicated to this story for so long. Well, it's a relief. We have been obviously chasing the story very hard and trying to figure out every detail we can. And it has felt for some time that they are wrapping up and that they were done with the substantive work. And so it was, on the one hand, it was nice to be have have hard evidence that that was true, that they were in fact done. But also, obviously, you know, like everyone else, you want to know what conclusions they came to. And yet this news Friday that the report had concluded, it didn't exactly come with a whole bunch of details that the public had been waiting for. There's basically a two-day period where we're all waiting for the smoke from the Vatican to tell us what exactly it is that Mueller has found. During that time, you know, there's basically a large stakeout of reporters at the Justice Department building. The attorney general is upstairs plowing through the document and writing his own letter to summarize it. And we're all trying to figure out what's in it. Meanwhile, Devlin's back at Washington Post headquarters. My reporting partner and I, Matt Zapatosky, we have been basically tag teaming this since, boy, I guess two weeks now when we when we felt like we were getting close. And so he was down at the Justice Department relaying every scrap of information that was coming around. I'm making phone calls here, you know, trying to get things in motion so that every piece of news he gets goes immediately into the into the paper, onto the website. And then Sunday afternoon, after a weekend of waiting, Attorney General Barr's summary of the report's findings is finally sent to Congress. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. On this episode, we're covering what we know so far about the findings of the Mueller report, what clarity we've gained, and what questions remain unanswered. First, I asked Devlin for a refresher on why the report had to go to the attorney general and then be summarized for Congress, rather than a complete full release to Congress and to the public. Right. So a lot of this is actually because of Whitewater and the Ken Starr investigation. So Ken Starr wrote, for those who don't remember, Ken Starr wrote a very long, a a book-length report. With salacious footnotes. With salacious footnotes about his investigation, which which ended up focusing at the end very much so on the president's affair with an intern, Monica Lewinsky. There was a lot of belief after, in the wake of that investigation, that that process should not be repeated. Mm -hmm. And so the Justice Department wrote regulations designed to restrict the amount of information that would come out from such a special counsel investigation again. And the way those regs were written meant that first the special counsel would submit a report to the Justice Department, to the attorney general, and then the attorney general would submit a report to Congress. And the theory and the thinking at that time was this would give the Justice Department a little more control in how much information was made public, and it wasn't quite so much about 
the special counsel just releasing, in theory, a giant historical record of whatever it was that was investigated. So that is how we got to this place, and that is why there is this sort of awkward two-step process that's baked into Mueller's work. So do you expect we'll see a full version of the report? I do. What Barr said in his letter is that he's working on taking out the parts of the report that might contain uh, what's called grand jury material because it is against the law to share publicly grand jury material. He does not make a reference to classified material, although I expect there's probably some classified discussions that he has to have on that score too. And he he also wrote that he needs to make sure that anything he releases would not negatively affect any of the ongoing spillover investigations that that are going to continue now that Mueller is done. That process, we really don't know how long that review process is going to take. It's probably going to take days. It may take more than a week. We don't know. But I do think that Barr is going to send a redacted version of Mueller's report out to the Hill in short order. What about the White House? Does the White House get to see the full report? Do they get to see it now before before the public, before Congress? It's a really good question. We're trying to figure that out because both the Justice Department and the White House have been pretty mum on that point. And there is one sort of rational scenario in which the White House lawyers could get to review this before the public. And that's over the question of executive privilege, Mm -hmm. because executive privilege, which is a privilege the president invokes because there is a a feature in American law that says that the president should have some right of privacy to conduct internal deliberations about policy and how he makes decisions. It's possible this process could get bogged down in an argument about executive privilege. We're not there yet. We don't really know. But that is one avenue which could be a a big wrench in this process. Okay, so speaking of some privileges granted to the president, something that comes up very often on this show is that Justice Department guidelines say you cannot indict a sitting president. Right. So a question that struck me in reading this summary is whether or not Mueller went into this investigation with that as a guiding light, right? If you know you can't indict a sitting president, do you investigate him differently than if you were operating without that sort of guidance? All indications are that Bob Mueller did not go into this investigation thinking, I will do it differently because we can't indict him. Mm -hmm. I I don't think Bob Mueller ever seriously considered the possibility of indicting the president. It's it's possible we'll find out, you know, if and when he speaks or if and when the report is issued and if that report speaks to that question. But I suspect that Mueller approached this as the task is to find out if the president did anything illegal. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that finding would lead to impeachment is sort of a secondary question. You have to answer the first question. And Barr makes pretty clear in his letter that, you know, we are not saying that the president did not do these crimes because he cannot be indicted. Barr is making clear in the letter, we are saying the president did not do these crimes because the evidence by Mueller's view and by Barr's view when it comes to the obstruction point Uh, does not support such an accusation. Okay, let's talk a little bit more then about the specifics of what's in the summary. There's essentially two main categories, right? Russian interference in the 2016 election and then obstruction of justice, as you mentioned. So a major finding in that first section, as described in the summary, it says, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. This feels huge and conclusive and definitive. Can it be interpreted that way? Is it, in fact, huge and conclusive and definitive? I see it that way, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think even more interesting is the second part that they say in the letter, which is that 
despite repeated Russian efforts to engage on on such on such terms. Mm -hmm. They basically make the point in the letter that Russians were willing to conspire and and seeking to make these kind of inroads with the campaign and the campaign didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, you can I would love to see how they assess in the full report exactly their views of the motives of some folks in the Trump campaign, mm -hmm. because obviously there was a meeting that was of, of great concern to the investigation. But yeah, I do think that on the question of conspiracy, that's a pretty unequivocal clearing of the president and his campaign. How unusual is it for a foreign government to approach a U.S. presidential campaign? It seems alarming to me that Russia would be willing to even take such, such steps to blatantly interfere, right? Should we be concerned that a foreign power perceives the integrity of our elections as so, I guess, so malleable, as so able to be influenced? I think it is unusual, but not unheard of. This this stuff does happen from time to time. It frankly, historically speaking, in terms of what, what's known, it happens more with other countries than it does with us. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think we should assume that, like, this is the first time that, one, Russia has tried to do this here, or that other countries have tried to make nice with a potential future president. If you think about it from a foreign country's point of view for a second, it makes all the sense in the world. One of the challenges for all these foreign countries who suddenly found themselves dealing with the prospect of a Trump presidency is that Trump didn't come from the normal political channels of American politics. So just think about the mechanics of diplomacy. No one in the Japanese embassy knows Donald Trump. No one in the Arab Emirates embassy knows Donald Trump. And so when it becomes clear that he is going to be the nominee, there's a lot of foreign capitals where the instructions that goes out to people is make friends with his friends, like mm -hmm. figure out who this person is, what they care about and, and how that might affect us and, you know, what it means for our country. That is a normal human diplomatic mm -hmm. foreign policy reaction. But what's different about what Russia did, according to U.S. intelligence officials, is that it wasn't good enough for Russia just to, you know, make friends or, or learn out, stake out policy discussions with, with them. They wanted something far more. They wanted to influence the outcome. They wanted to hurt Hillary Clinton. And they wanted to, you know, muck around. All right. Let's move on to the second half of this summary, which amazingly to me for the purposes of this show does not actually answer the can he do that question here <laughs> when it comes to whether or not the president obstructed justice. The summary basically says Mueller's team is couldn't decide. <laughs> right, right. Uh, can you explain how in the world an inconclusive conclusion is an option for a special prosecutor? Right now, I can't. That really strikes me as, as strange, unusual, and unexpected. Mm -hmm. Because as several people pointed out to us, several current and former law enforcement officials pointed out to us immediately after that letter came out, a main reason for the appointment of the special counsel in the first place is to tackle this very question. Mm -hmm. Because having the Justice Department decide on whether or not the president obstructed justice is a very difficult thing to ask the Justice Department proper to do. And so it was tasked to Mueller largely to give the finding credibility one way or the other. And it's amazing to me that faced with that tasking, Mueller of all people decided he didn't know um, and he couldn't make a determination. So what happened is that, as described in the letter, is that Mueller decided he would not make a prosecutorial decision on the question of obstruction. He would essentially present the pro and the con of here are the factual and legal reasons why it, it could be obstruction. Here are the factual reasons why it's not obstruction. 
that's an interesting choice because whether he meant to or not, that puts the decision in, in the attorney general's lap, Bill Barr's lap. Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein looked at the same evidence and said, these facts do not rise to the level of criminal obstruction by our, meaning Rosenstein's and Barr's, interpretation of the law. That's important because we know that even before he was the attorney general, Barr was was very uh, skeptical and critical of this question of obstruction as it relates to the president. He wrote a private memo to the Justice Department long well before he came to the to the back to the department criticizing what he perceived to be Mueller's rationale on that question. So I think Barr has a bit of political vulnerability there because I think the Democrats fairly go immediately to the memo and say, "Oh, what a surprise. The guy who writes the memo saying obstruction is nonsense." now makes a finding based on Mueller's report that obstruction is nonsense. It's so striking that knowing that political context, Mueller would still give them the ability to be the people to make that decision. Absolutely. And we've talked to people who know both men, and they are shocked that Mueller did that. And again, this is why reading the actual report is so important. But it is bizarre that the arguably central question, I mean, there's two central questions, right? But a hugely important piece of this entire process, we are told in this letter, Mueller just sort of said, uh, we can't we can't reach a conclusion on this on our side. And we'll let a man who has publicly written an opinion right. on this right. make that decision. I would really like to see Mueller's rationale described by Mueller. But I do think it is a strange and awkward dance that DOJ ended up having on the question of obstruction, because you're right back at the thing that the special counsel was supposed to prevent, which was having a political appointee make a decision on whether the president committed a crime. The special counsel was supposed to do that, not the AG. Um, so I think I think that'll be the topic of big fights on the Hill. And the summary essentially says, though, that it's difficult to prove someone obstructed justice if there was no crime for which he was obstructing investigation into. That's correct. That is that is difficult. It's not impossible. You can, under the law, you can charge someone with obstructing even if you never ultimately find sort of an underlying crime that was being hidden. Mm -hmm. That does happen. However, I do think one of the other ways in which this is weird, and this is admittedly a nerdy point, but like in prosecutors' offices, if you can't reach a decision, if it's essentially a jump ball, that means you don't file a charge. That means you recommend no charges. Part of what's confusing to me about what Mueller did here is if if Mueller was going to say uh, we can't reach a conclusion as to whether or not the president uh, committed obstruction, the natural prosecutorial move would be, and therefore we don't recommend any charges of any kind, mm -hmm. because that's the that's the fallback. You know, it's, it's a simple thing: innocent until proven guilty. If you don't think you can prove him guilty then you have to assume he's innocent. Again, I would love to see Mueller's rationale and how he describes this thought process, because on its face, I don't quite understand it. And the key moments of potential obstruction that Mueller was looking into, just to remind us, mm -hmm. it was the possible dictating of Donald Trump Jr.'s statement. There's a bunch of issues. Uh, that's Comey. one of them. Firing Comey, I think, is actually legally a trickier one mm -hmm. because he does have that authority. But there are things that led up to the firing of Comey, certainly, that, that I think were, de were a big part of the obstruction question, specifically 
him asking Comey when Comey was still the FBI director to go easy on his former national security advisor, mm, Michael right. Flynn, drop it. You know, he sort of said, I, I, I'd love it if you could drop it. Comey obviously took that as a as a direction. Comey has always said he he took that request as a direction because it's coming from the president and his boss. And there's a series of things that happen after Comey is appointed where the president seems to be trying to get Jeff Sessions, the, the then attorney general, to quit. And what was the purpose of that? What was his intent to trying to get Jeff Sessions to quit? Was it to mess with the investigation or was it because he just personally wanted Jeff Sessions out of there? Or was it both? These were all questions that the special counsel looked at. And look, I, I think one of the things that is clear from the letter already is that Mueller struggled with this. Like mm-hmm. this was a difficult thing for Mueller to figure out legally and factually. And I do think that, you know, part of the reason why why you could see this coming, though, in a way, is because Mueller never sought a subpoena of the president. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been much harder to recommend uh, impeachment or, you know, some sort of process to initiate based on the question of obstruction without having subpoenaed the president and gotten his answers to some of these questions. So why didn't he push harder on that? It's a great question. It's one of the things we're trying to figure out still, because I do think the obstruction decision grows in great part out of the uh, subpoena question. I think one possible answer is that um, if he had subpoenaed the president, quite likely that would have gone up the courts into the Supreme Court. And I'm not sure. I mean, only Mueller knows exactly how much evidence he had and how strong his argument was legally. But imagine the consequences if you file that subpoena and lose. That means that every investigator who comes after you for all time will be stuck with the consequences of you losing that subpoena fight. And a lot of times lawyers, I can't say that this is definitely what happened here, but a lot of times lawyers, when faced with the prospect of you know, sort of losing an important investigative tool, would decide that this particular case is not worth losing a tool for all time. Well, Trump is claiming that this is a total exoneration for him. So first, is it? And second of all, uh, is there some support for his claim that this was a witch hunt in any way? I think he's on much firmer ground to make that argument when it comes to the collusion question. Mm-hmm. But remember, the president is also the person who went on live TV and said, Russia, if you're listening, please go get emails. These people will be very happy. You can say he did not take part in the conspiracy, but you can also say he clearly likes Russia and mm-hmm. and is a fan of Vladimir Putin. It is not a crime to like Russia and be a fan of Vladimir Putin. It's, that's very different from committing a crime. So I think... He is right to claim vindication on the collusion question. I think the obstruction question is very much a mixed bag, even though the Justice Department as an enti- as an entity has decided that he hasn't. That Democrats already view that as a political judgment. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see, can the Justice Department, can the Attorney General Bill Barr convince a significant portion of the public that it's not a political conclusion. Mm-hmm. But Trump has even suggested investigating the other side, right. investing the people who decided to launch this probe. Is that something he can actually do? Not really, although it's worth keeping in mind that the Justice Department's inspector general is already conducting investigations into multiple parts of the Russia investigation. So to a large degree, that's already happening. And frankly, that was almost always going to happen whether the president wanted it to or not. You might remember after the Clinton email investigation ended, there was a long internal investigation of how everything in that case was handled. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was always going to be sort of a secondary, you know, after investigation of how everything was handled. And, And that's what you're seeing now. And 
it'll certainly be interesting to see what comes of that. So this seems like the end of the Mueller investigation. Is it? Is it this the end? Is the end of the Mueller investigation. Okay. <laughs> there will be other investigations that go on. Mm-hmm. And I think the Democrats on, in the House are going to try to keep this obstruction thing alive and see how far they can take it. And Mueller might have to testify. Right. I, I do think that eventually Mueller will be before a committee somewhere. This investigation, though, has launched other investigations outside of Congress. Correct. So what, what's ongoing there, you know, kind of briefly? And, and which of those are notable? There is an investigation in New York by federal prosecutors in New York into the presidential inaugural committee, how mm-hmm. the money was raised and spent in that case. And there are a number of sort of state entity investigations into the finances of the Trump organization and other thing, related things. And there is a murky and hard to quite process investigation into one associate of the president in by federal prosecutors in Brooklyn, New York. But I, I do think like one thing to remember about these other investigations is these are investigations that are offshoots of the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation was the one that really looked at the president directly. So I do agree with the notion that there are other investigations that could have serious consequences for people in Trump's universe. But those other investigations so far have shown no indication that they will be coming at the president directly. Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer, is going to prison in May. He has suggested publicly that there are other things that he has told prosecutors that will be that that involve the president and could be very serious. I think there's a fair, fairly good reason to be skeptical of Cohen's reliability on that score because Cohen wants a shorter prison time. Uh, and that's a fine thing for him to want, but that doesn't mean the rest of the world will will agree with that. So there are a lot of other things percolating out there, but I personally don't see any giant new legal threat right now uh, to the president. Okay. So for you, based on what you've gained from this summary, what major outstanding questions do you have that you're hoping to gain from a full report? So first and foremost, what does Mueller think of the obstruction question? We know what how Barr describes what Mueller thinks of the obstruction question, but we don't really have Mueller extensively describing in his own words how he tried to tackle that problem. Uh, Second of all, what were all the internal conversations between the special counsel and the DOJ leadership leading up to the report? That seems very important given the way it came down in the end. And finally, I think I would like to know what Mueller thinks of the entirety of the case. Now, the letter describes sort of two shoot offshoots. I would like to know how Mueller views all of this work now that it's done. Do you think you'll gain that from the report? Cautiously optimistic. I think, you know, Mueller's a fairly dry and legal technical person, but he's also a fairly straightforward person. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful it's not going to be a lot of finely shaved wording of, of things. Mm-hmm. I think both Mueller and Bill Barr have a focus on doing and saying things that the public finds credible. And so I think they will try to be fairly direct in how they answer these questions. So then my last question for you is, what sorts of questions might we never know the answers to? So things like why the president seems so infatuated with Putin and Russia so much so that he's willing to disparage our our community of intelligence. So there's a lot of, let's call them down in the weeds details of this investigation that folks like myself have obsessed about for a long time that I think we might not ever get an answer to. So, for example, 
what did Mueller conclude about, you know, this weird trip to the Seychelles that uh, a Trump supporter took during the transition period that seemed to be about setting up a back channel to the Russian government, but didn't really come to anything, but was done very secretively. And, and it, it's just an odd, the, the whole meeting, that whole, that whole sequence of events is just odd and unusual. And I don't know that we'll ever get an answer to exactly what th- that was about. And it may be that Mueller never really figured out exactly what it was about. We don't know yet. The other parts that are, are curious to me and, and may just sort of be at a, a dead end is, you know, what would have happened if the Trump Tower meeting with the Russian lawyer um, went further? You know, it, as described by the Americans in the room, it was sort of a pointless meeting with two sides talking past each other. Um, and what would have happened, you know, what was the full context of why the president does what he does with Michael Flynn, his former national security advisor, and why Michael Flynn does what he does with the FBI agents? Because one of the un- unbelievable mysteries of this whole process to me, one of the things that I really think about a lot is why did folks lie about stuff they didn't need to lie about? Uh, Flynn pled guilty to lying. Uh, he didn't need to tell that lie, uh, not for a legal reason, certainly. Uh, maybe he did it to, in his mind, protect the president or protect the administration somehow. But I think you could make a pretty convincing argument. I mean, that was a dumb lie mm-hmm. because you, you got a conviction for it. Um, so I think understanding people's motives, I would, I would love to understand better people's motives. And hopefully the Mueller report will speak to that. But at the end of the day, Mueller's not a psychic. You know, mm-hmm. if, he, if, if a person can't explain their motives in a convincing way to an investigator, the investigator is ultimately not going to know, really. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. All right, Devlin, I can't promise we won't have you back in the studio some other time this week. But thank you so Understood. much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, share it wherever you share things, listen wherever you listen to podcasts, and keep coming back week after week. We'll be here. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the infallible Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Post Reports. Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from the Post newsroom in our newest daily podcast. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.